Yes, can be seated. Well, the past few weeks we've been discussing who God is and whether He's worthy of our praise. And so we've been looking at what God has actually declared to us about Himself. Instead of looking at what the world says God is or what we want God to be, we're looking at God's own words. And so the very core of what we're studying is Exodus 34, which was just read to us. That talks about a lot of really nice things about God. Um, It talks about everything from compassion, that He is gracious, that He is steadfast in love, that He is forgiving and faithful. But right in the middle of it, there's this element of He's slow to anger. He's somebody who doesn't let those who deserve judgment not receive it. And so today we're going to be talking about this component of God, of the angry God. Is God the angry God, or is He something different to us in Scripture? So we're going to be talking about some of the ways that God interacts when He is confronted with human evil, and whether we believe that it is worthy, or He, rather, is worthy of our love. What if we look at Scripture, and we look at God, and we go, actually, He's not worthy of my love. This guy's a monster. But the question we're going to answer today is one of three. The first is, um, in a world where we see anger as predominantly negative, as something to be avoided, something that um, is probably the context where many of us have had many of our negative experiences with others, uh, is there ever a scenario where anger is the appropriate response? Or is anger something that is, by and large, uh, full stop, wrong? If God tells us that He is slow to anger, that means there's anger. And so for us to think that God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament and Jesus, we need to recognize that Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. And so what we need to do today is we're going to look at the the broad scope of Scripture that sees who God of the entire Bible is, one who interacts with injustices and evil in a consistent way. Jesus is not the nice version of God. Jesus is the image of the eternal God on earth. And He is demonstrating to us who God has been through it all. So we're going to answer three questions today, okay? First one, is anger always inappropriate or is there a context where anger is correct? Second question we're going to ask, what does God's anger look like? Is it irrational? Does it look like the anger that was in your father's eyes? Does it look like the anger that was in that person who was unkind to you? Does it look like the anger when I lose my temper? Is it God seeing red? We're going to look at Scripture. And we're going to allow God to show us what it looks like when he gets angry. And third and finally, the question is, what does God's anger and patience feel like? Because it's very important that we not only think about this in a philosophical, higher perspective, but going like, what does it feel like when I'm experiencing God's patience? And what does it feel like when I'm experiencing his anger? Or even is it his anger? Okay, does that sound good? So I'm going to just say a little prayer. Um, We're going to dive into this because I know anger is complex for many of us. 
God, we just say thank you that you are not a unfeeling God. You're not dis, um, disinterested, Lord God, in what we experience. You're not disinterested, Lord God, um, in, in what we wrestle with. And you, you've made us your kids, man, and we want to live well for you. And so, God, it's your job right now to show us how to live in this world and to love you and to know you well. God, it's, it's much easier for us to imagine a God that is, is so um, compartmentalized and so easy for us to handle, Lord, but that's not a true picture of you. You are complex and you are very dynamic. And so help us, Jesus, to, to sit under your scripture and to just drink in who you are. And would you allow us to fall in love with the real you? So give us courage. Give us confidence. Give us power through your spirit to understand you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so first question, is anger always inappropriate? I'm going to start by reading a quote from uh, a Jewish um, academic. He's no longer, he passed away in 72, but his name is Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's, he's a really incredible thinker. He says this about the idea of God feeling passion. Few passions have been denounced, that is, few feelings have been denounced so vehemently by teachers of morality as the passion of anger. It is a picture of, it is pictured as sinister, malignant passion, an evil force which must under all circumstances be suppressed. The truth, however, is that these features are not the essence of anger. It is more like fire. It may be a blessing as well as fatal and reprehensible when associated with malice, but morally necessary as resistance to malice. Just like a fire can warm a person who is freezing to death, so a fire can rage and become destructive. It's more about the appropriateness of the person who wields it and the goodness and the ability of the person to use it well. Even in Scripture, we see Heschel goes on, really the ultimate evil when it comes to feelings or pathos, as he calls it, is indifference. Apathy, he says, is the opposite or the ultimate evil in the world. To stand by and say and feel nothing when something terrible is going on. Monday afternoon, I'm reading the headlines of what's taking place in Texas. And I'm reading the interactions of what took place. And, and there's this uh, anger and this vicious, just this, this rage filled me. Anybody else? Like, what in the... I wanted to say bad things. And I'm like, I wonder if God wants to say bad things about this. If God isn't angry about what took place on Monday, is he really good? If he's just standing by at an indifference, no, that is the opposite of who God describes himself to be. Apathy is evil in the face of wrong. And so we would have to come and answer our first question today and say, there is an appropriate time for anger to be applied. Yes? Today we're going to be talking about an angry God versus a patient God. 
a God of long-suffering, a God who endures instead of just snaps, a God who manages the inner tension when he sees the negative evil in the world. We've been looking the last few weeks of this whole series about whether God is worthy of our love. First week was looking at the, the, the God as a withholding God versus a generous God of relationship. The next week we talked about a, an absent God versus a compassionate God. The following week, this last week, we looked at God as a transactional God versus a God of grace that gives us what we don't deserve. And today we talk about an angry God versus a long-suffering, patient God. We have to look at this. So question number two is, what does God's anger look like? Well, if we look at the word in Scripture, even in Exodus 34, where it says that he is slow to anger, uh, Tim Mackey actually describes anger as anger is not a core part of God's character. And so for us to to think about God as like he's always going to be angry for all of eternity. No, anger is a secondary response. Anger is a secondary response to human evil. It is what comes out when human evil is in his presence. It's a strange idiom that's used in Scripture. Um, the, the Hebrew is Eric Apayim, which means slow of anger, is interpreted in a lot of people's Bibles. And if you nerd out about it, it there's some really weird words in it. But it's basically when uh, uh, I used to love drawing the Chicago Bulls back in the day when Michael Jordan was there. He was, you know, I would always draw the, the, the bull with the horns, the ears, the earring, and the nostrils that are blowing the steam out, right? Anybody? Um, I was amazed. I jotted it on my notes today, and it all came back to me so quick. Like, all the details. Oh, wow. Um, The steam coming out of the nose. This is the picture that Scripture actually describes, like, hot of nose. But when God, so it's like, right? Um, But what uh, God describes himself as is slow of becoming hot in nose. Slow of anger. So it's like a long fuse. God's like, You can make me mad, but you got to work real hard at it, in the words of my mentor, Gary Brashears. you got to work hard to get God mad. But there is a moment where he's like, nah, dude, enough. But there's a lot of moments where God patiently, long-suffering is another way of interpreting that. Isn't that interesting? When 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 we're dealing with our our children or friends or relationships, and there's just like tension there, and you want the, the thing to get righted, but it's like, Patience, 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 patience. God is like, listen, I have such a willingness to suffer through that with you. I'm not ready and willing to like cut you out. That's not God's heart. And so for us to say God's anger automatically means when he gets mad, it's like boom, boom, boom. All is over, lights out. It's not that. It's not scorched earth. It is something that is measured and careful. Um. A question for you guys. So in the Bible, we have um, the first two judgment narratives that come up are Adam and Eve and the flood, right? So in which of those two, if I said one of those two really show, I'm not going to say that actually. Of those two, I don't want to lie, of those two, which would you guess would have anything to do with God being angry? Adam and Eve, the flood. Flood? Flood? 
Okay. Neither of them do. God's grieving. He's sad. And so we have to actually realize that sometimes we're actually reading in this rage, this vindictive, angry God into some of the Old Testament stories when it's actually God is sorrowful when he looks at the earth and he sees the destructive nature of people against people and against even his own creation. See, none of those describe the the anger of God, but when we look at the book of Exodus, which you've been spending a lot of time in, there's three pictures of God becoming angry. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 4. This is the first time God gets angry. Any guesses what it is? No. First time God gets angry. Good guess, though. So there's this guy, born and raised in Egypt, kills a guy trying to defend his people, goes into the wilderness, wanders around, sees a burning bush. God says, take off your shoes. It's holy ground, man. And Moses is like, whoa, okay, okay, okay. And he's like, hey, I'm sending you, Moses. Moses, no, you're not. You got the wrong guy, brother. No, 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 I'm sending you, Moses. No, you're not. I don't want to. Moses, I am sending you. God, don't you have somebody else to send? I'm sending you. God, I can't speak five times. God, we're told, gets angry. Exodus 4.14, Then the anger of the Lord burned. Basically, his nose burned hot against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you are to speak to him and put his words, sorry, put your words in his mouth. And I, even I, I'll be with your mouth as his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Okay, so we see God get angry, hot of the nose. What's the response? Help. What? Help. He like changed, he's like, I'm angry, I'm feeling ang-. That's what we need to realize. It's a feeling that God has because he's a real personality. So when something comes that's in opposition to you, you're going to feel things and it's not going to be sinful. <laughs> you're going to have emotions that erupt and you're going to have to figure out how to endure them and walk through them. That's why it says, be angry, do not sin. And so God's anger comes and he feels it and then he just changes his, not necessarily changes his mind, he makes it a space. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, I'm angry. How much brother? Let's do that. And I'll bless you and I'll help you. Do you see how God felt anger and did nothing? There was nothing retributive. There was actually just making more space for Moses. It was grace almost. Like, okay, okay, Moses, I've asked you five times. Let's get your brother involved. I wonder what if Moses wouldn't have argued and he just would have let God move through his broken mouth. How much more intimate and beautiful that carrying out that calling would have been. But God, as a response to this frustration, he, he actually invites someone else in and goes, okay, we're going to work through you and your brother. Second one, second one. Uh, it was a reaction to distrust. So his anger came from distrust. Moses didn't trust that God could use him. Okay, 
What makes God, God mad? One, distrust. Okay, Exodus 14 is another one. It's the second one where it comes. Exodus 14, this is um, uh, all the, the nation of Israel is being led out. Um, Pharaoh has just been uh, affronting the people of God, chasing them down. Um, they, he has been oppressive. He has been making their work difficult by removing all the bits that they needed to make the blocks. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is when Israel cries out, God, save us. God moves, sends Moses. Um, it's not a small thing that, that also Pharaoh had been throwing their own children and drowning them into the, the Nile. Okay, And so there's 10 plagues, right? Exodus 14, 7. And in, and in the greatness of your excellence, this is a worshipful song after they were delivered, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils and the water, the waters were piled up. So this is talking about the Red Sea. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heat of the sea. Okay, more context here. This is God's anger being sung about how when Pharaoh pursued Israel, when they were leaving Egypt, when Pharaoh got into the middle of the heaped up waters, do you see that? When he got into the middle of it, it says God's uh, anger burned and Pharaoh was drowned. So God's anger towards an oppressive injustice, towards vulnerable individuals came out as anger. So one, distrust, angers the Lord. Secondly, oppression of the vulnerable, angers the Lord. And that came as judgment towards Pharaoh. Now did God, let's roll it back a second. So God, he got angry and then he drowned Pharaoh and all of his folk, right? Was that Pharaoh's first chance? So Moses got five, Pharaoh got ten. Okay? Wave after wave, God being patient, God trying to convince. There were some complex things going on in there. But then do you even see how the judgment came? Pharaoh was drowning their children. God almost turned Pharaoh's evil back on himself and drowned him and his people as a judgment. We'll get more into to how that, that whole thing works. Um, not only did God divide the space and create a safe place of safety, but it became a place of judgment when God withdrew his protective care. Okay? So it wasn't so much that God went in and was like, smash, smash, smash. It was like, and I'm removing my power from holding the waters back. And as the waters collapse in without me, it drowns them. So it's more of a removal that we see in Scripture of God's intentive care. Okay? Third space is Exodus 32.10, where it, and this is the circumstance where Exodus 34, where God describes himself to uh, Israel, is found. This whole scenario is when they made an idol 
to another God when he was meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. This is when God got mad the third time. When his covenant people were unfaithful to him. Verse 32 says this, Now then, let me alone. Give me rest that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I'll make of you a great nation. So God is really responding in frustration. Back up. I'm going to wipe him out. Moses, yeah, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Uh, I, I, I did it. I did it with Noah. I'll do it with you. And yet we see Moses responding in a different, in a different way. When we see what God's anger really looks like, we have to ask the question, is it irrational? Is God's anger at this unfaithful people rational? Or is he acting outside of his character? Let me press into Exodus 34 with you because this is on the back of God being angry. This is in the midst of God's anger. Moses is saying, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Tell me how I may find favor in your sight. And God declares this to him in 34.6. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth and fifth generation, but showing steadfast love to the thousands for those who love me and keep my commands. When we think about that idea of God's anger and his judgment, that almost sounds irrational. Wait, you're going to... I like the bit that you judge those who deserve Judgment. You're not going to let the, the guilty go unpunished. I like that, God, especially when it's someone who's hurt me. Um, but you visit the iniquity of the fathers for generations to come. And some people have kind of taken this as like generational um, sin where, or there's a curse. But what does that feel like when we have a God who would visit sin on your grandchild for you? Does that sound easy for us to get our head around? It doesn't sound like justice to me. In fact, there are other scriptures where it says that a man shall suffer for his own sins. And so this can't actually be saying that God is going to punish your grandkids for sins that you committed. Yes, your grandkids are going to feel consequences of your sins. They're going to feel positive consequences of your faithfulness. That God is going to bless you and he's going to build a great name for you. He's going to honor you. He's going to build your home and steadfastly carry it through and be a provision to you. Yes, your children and grandchildren, they are experiencing the joy of that right now, some of you. That it is your faithfulness that has directly um, created a spirit of blessing that they're experiencing that has nothing to do with their own faithfulness. True? True. In the same way that our sins, we can actually bake situations or create havoc in our lives that actually our children and children's children feel. Thus, it's the broken world that many of us experience. We're born into the pain that our parents and grandparents have created. But what this isn't saying is that for a person to sin, it's going to then 
God's going to have this vendetta, vendetta against you and your children and grandchildren. That's, that's not what this is actually saying. For us to understand this, we have to look at where this originally came from. Okay? Chapter 20 of Exodus is when God actually first references this. This, this serious, weighty uh, 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 seriousness in the second commandment. So Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. First commandment, you shall not, you shall uh, have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself carved images or anything like it out of uh, anything that's in the heaven above or the earth below um, or the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation to those who, what? Hate me. So listen, God is not saying that it's a vendetta. He's saying, I will consistently punish and bring justice on every generation that interacts with me the way that you have. If your kids repeat your sin, I'm going to be the same way towards them. If your grandkids repeat this sin, I will be opposed to them. You don't get to pay the price for your grandkids to then be let off free. There's no grandkids in the kingdom of God, right? There are only children of God. And so what he's trying to communicate is, listen, you can, be, you can count on me that if you walk in steadfastness towards me, you will experience me as gracious, good, kind, all of these things. But if you live out a hatred of me, you can count on me to act in a way that's in accordance with the way that you've interacted with me. Now, what did God do in this case? Well, we see that Moses says, okay, you're gracious and forgiving. Verse 8, it goes on in 34, it goes... Have mercy on us. You tell me that you're forgiving. You tell me that you're just. Please forgive us. And we see that God, even though he was angry in this moment, because Moses interceded and became a mediator, God, if if you're not willing to forgive them, blot my name out and have mercy on them. You see, there's something about God's anger that was valid. He had a people, made them their own. He rescued them. He brought them to himself and said, hey, this is what I need from you, and I'll take care of you. And they're like, yeah, we'll totally do it. Five minutes later, they were enacting a hatred towards God. That's what the second commandment says. So idolatry is another thing that angers the heart of God. When he brings a people close to himself and invests himself deeply in it, it actually affects God to a deeper space than the unfaithfulness of those who are not in relationship with him. Is that not true about our own families? Those whom we love deeply, care for deeply, suffer for, when they injure us or when they display a disregard or a hatred or apathy towards us, man, it wounds us deeply, right? And so God is simply interacting this, hey man, when when you're in relationship with me, you turn your back on me, that wounds me deeply. And you're going to have this response, and unless there's a mediator, this response is going to overwhelm you. Do you see this? 
This is a foreshadowing of who Jesus is for us. That when we, his bride, are unfaithful to him, Jesus steps in, demonstrates his hands, and is like, have mercy on them. Please. Please blot my name out of your book. Treat me as a curse. Abandon me, not them. So we see this really interesting thing that there is this anger, but it's not an anger that's unstoppable. That a mediatory work is is actually um, effective in that space. So God experiences anger, firstly, when people are distrustful of what he's calling us to. Secondly, when we are um, treating others in injustice and oppressive. And thirdly, um, he experiences anger when those he has brought near are unfaithful. So what is God's anger? His anger is is often thought of as as wrath in, in Scripture. And often in Israel, it shows up as um, this this strange relationship when Israel was unfaithful. It would send them not to like eternal death, but into exile. When Israel, his people, would be unfaithful, he would patiently warn them, send them prophets, saying, hey, come back to me, come back to me. And then finally he would go, okay. And they would experience a sense of his anger through exile. And they would be sent to the pastures, so to speak. And so the question I just want to sit in for two minutes here is, the New Testament talks about God's anger and often uses the word wrath, but it's just orge. And so whenever it says wrath, don't automatically think like blind hatred. That's, that's just an, uh, too basic of an interpretation of this word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. This is where we see New Testament, how God demonstrates his anger or wrath. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be plainly known about God is plain to them, because He's shown it to them. For he is vis- for His visible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God... Now, listen in, because this will sound familiar, back to our Exodus golden calf. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God. Or give thanks for him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the God on the mountain of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. The next verse then declares to us what God's wrath is revealed by. This is how God shows his wrath. Therefore, God crushed them. No, that's not right. Therefore, God smited them. No, that's, that's not right either. Um, therefore, God ignored them and cast shame on them. No, that's, that's not it either. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, 
to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to to a debased mind. Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Do we see the idea that God's wrath is most commonly experienced not by thunderbolts from the sky or pillars of fire coming, but they're experienced through God removing His blessing. That it's God giving up His active holding back. Oh, God didn't hold us back from becoming the evil that we all are in and of ourselves. If God didn't hold back humanity from becoming as bad as we could get, we would never find our way towards Him. God is constantly, in every moment, in every circumstance, bending creation, bending creation towards Himself to try and draw humanity back to Himself. Is this not what Paul says in Acts Acts 17, where he says that for the bounds of your existence and the time of your dwelling were set before time so that you would claw and find your way towards Him, even though He is not very far from any of us. God is longing to draw people back, and only when He sees the hopelessness of rebellion and knows the trajectory of where this ends, He gives them up. He says, oh, you don't want me. Okay, go ahead. You don't want me, the God on the mountain, the smoke and in the fire and the flashing thunder. You don't want me. You want that golden calf. Well, have your golden calf. I love that Moses came down from the mountain um, and part of God's judgment on them. Do you know what Moses did? I love this. It's so weird. He took the golden calf and he ground it up. He mixed it with water. And he's like, you want a golden calf? You want this, God? You go ahead and have him. Drink it on down. And he became refuse. (laughs) You see, God gives us what we want in the end. Not willingly. Oh, he does not want to see humanity perish. It breaks the heart of God even to see the wicked perish, we're told, in the prophets. But there's a dignity that God actually gives you and I. The strange dignity of allowing us to time and time again be confronted with who He is and He gives us the ability to turn our shoulders away from Him. To to choose a life apart from Him over a life with Him. We do worship a gracious God who is compassionate and forgiving. He is slow and patient but he does become angry, and by anger it is okay. It's, it's, a, it's a, a surrender of you to himself. I'm no longer going to use all of my powers to hold you back, stumbling towards the slaughter. That sounds nice, right? 
That sounds nice. Sounds better. Let me, let me prove it to you. Is that okay? Do we have time? I don't know what time it is. Flood narrative. Flood narrative. Let's check it out. Genesis 6, verse 11. There's a bit of brokenness in uh, the English translation where some of, uh, I believe there's some translations there that have kind of made it a little bit foggy, that have made us feel like you all went, the flood is where God got angry. Know it. I'm sure of it. And fair enough, when you look at the English, most English translations in verse 11 of chapter 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all of all flesh. That's, that's how most New Testaments translate the original Hebrew. But if you were to read, and this is, the most, this is the most practical way to read the original Hebrew, and I'll stop at the sentence that's most important. Genesis 6.11 should read, uh, according to the original, with, the land was ruined before God. The land was filled with violence so that God saw the land and look, it was ruined. For all the flesh had caused the ruin of its way upon the land. And then this is the, this is the opposite to, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. The Hebrew actually says, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come up before me. Do you see how that's different? Between I have determined to make an end and the end of all flesh has come up before me. If we were to read it in the original sense, it would be much more uh, of the essence of saying, God looked and saw the brokenness of humanity and the, the, the death dive that humanity was in. And he knew that the end had come. He could have left it, but instead... He actually stepped in to allow creation to carry out what was the inevitable in a quicker succession through the earth. One of the scholars, Daniel Hayek, says this, The introduction of the flood story suggests that God has seen where the ruination of creation is headed and has decided to accelerate the process of its completion. The plain sense of the Hebrew text conveys something very different than most English translations, which are perhaps influenced by the view of an angry, punitive deity. The flood was an ancient symbol of destruction and disorder. So it is a fitting medium for the dissolution of creation, as it overwhelms every boundary, and listen to this, returns to the primordial, undifferentiated deep that existed before Yahweh spoke boundaries into being. We are left with the sense that God is not so much sending a flood to punish the world as much as facilitating through the flood the inevitable 
descent into chaos caused by human destructiveness and violence. He speaks of the idea of the flood being a decreation. This is one moment where the chalkboard would be helpful. If you were to go back to Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, it says that God divided the water from the water, the water below from the water above, and then he made land emerge. A space where Adam and Eve would be placed in the garden and where they were intended to thrive. So God in creation was actually creating a space of safety, a place for people to wrestle with him and find him and find life in him. But in the flood, what God does is he actually, if you, if you hear, it had not rained before that time. The water's above. And he caused water to spring up from the ground, the water below. God actually pulls away his sustaining care that was created for human thriving and goes, okay, I am literally holding creation together and you guys have spoiled it. Therefore, I am going to remove my constant protective care and allow creation to fall back into chaos. You see, the judgment of God is less about him causing people to suffer and it's leaving humanity to be in the world apart from him. And I hope that we can get a hold of that because it changes drastically the way we view who God is. Many people live in the world as if they wished God wasn't. It is the primary driving factor behind atheism. I'm convinced of it. We want a world where there's no accountability, where God doesn't exist. And in the end, God says, if you want a world where I don't exist, I'm going to give it to you. In a world immersed in chaos and brokenness. There's a reason why eternity apart from God is marked by uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where? In the outer darkness. Out of God's presence. Away from his care and his concern. So is God angry? Yes, he gets angry at sin and brokenness. He gets angry when the chaos breaks into his world. He gets angry when when chaos breaks out in, in a school setting where little children are there. He gets angry when people sit by and do nothing. He gets angry when we distrust his plans. He gets angry when we, when we resist and when we work against him and when we're unfaithful to him. Yes, he does. And unless we have a mediator, Jesus, who's willing to step in the way of his judgment, we are lost and forever apart from him, lost to the chaos of our own broken longings and lost to the brokenness of each other. But because God is a God who is um, intolerant and unwilling to be unmoved in the face of evil, he sent his son, Jesus. Final question, and I don't know how long it's been. I apologize. What does God's patience feel like? What does his patience and anger feel like? So if God's anger is not um, his curses on you, but it's him giving you space to go your own way, 
It's possible that some of us are, I've experienced God's anger. When I'm like, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to influence what I do. I want to do my own thing. And he goes, you sure? Are you really sure? He sends a friend. Hey, David, are you okay? I don't want it. God's like, okay. Little by little, we can invite God's undesired anger, so to speak. It's just a bad word to use. I understand that. But it's judgment, really. It's like, but his judgment comes in the form of letting us go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Father, God, Father, I want all my inheritance. I want to go live over there instead of with you in your house. Father goes. Okay. And we, we run away from the Father's house and we go live our own life. And Father's sitting there going like, please come back. Some of us, we're, we're in the far country away from the Father's house. And it's, it's not what we dreamed it would be. This is some of God's judgment that can come into our life, not to condemn you, not to send you to hell. We're told in Scripture that whom God loves, He disciplines. So it's a distinction there. Child of God, you're going to feel distance. And it's God trying to draw you back to Himself. Okay. Uh, we're going to end, I promise. Personally, to experience God's Judgment, I think that's probably a better word. But also his patience, because God says, I'm slow to judge. I'm patient. I love the fact that God is patient with me. I'm I'm thankful that God is slow to anger towards me. But it's also a source of great pain to other people. Uh, We love it when God is patient with us, but we hate it when he's that way with others. Second Peter 3 says this, verse 8. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive patient, er, repentance, all should reach repentance. The long-suffering God has not returned to fix the world for one reason. Not because He's mad at us. Not because He's indifferent. The one thing holding God back from coming today to establish all right and punish all wrong is that He is still holding out hope and suffering as He does brokenhearted as he does, as people reject him, but he still waits, longing for more people to come to know him. Yes, the innocent, come to know him. Yes, the guilty, come to know him. He is patient even with those who want nothing to do with him. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And this is how we see a God who is patient, birthing a community of people who are patient, Our suffering today, our unfulfilled cry for Jesus to return. I called for it this week. God, I've had enough. Come back. That's it. (laughs) I'm done. The reason he said no to me was he's 
still wanting to rescue and reach those around us with mercy. So for us to be like God, slow to anger, we must embody a patience, a community of resilient patience, willing to suffer with for the sake of others. And this is what Jesus has actually created in us, is a resilient heart who sent His Spirit to give us comfort as we walk this journey home. One practical piece as we close. The church, we embody this because there's going to be pain that we need to be patient with in the family of God with each other. Jesus knew it. That's why He gave us Matthew 18 that says, if your brother sins against you, Don't scorched earth cut him out. That's not kingdom. It's easier to do that. What does he say? Go to them. Talk to them about what they've done. Patience. Long-suffering. If they listen, praise God. But if they don't, take a brother. Patience. Long-suffering. Pain. If they listen, praise God. If not, church, stand together, praying and hoping that they turn. Do you see how the long-suffering is such a beautiful thing to us, but it's also such a challenging thing to embody? And for us to truly embody Jesus in the world, we're going to have to suffer along with Him, for it has been gifted to us not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer with Him. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being so kind to us and patient. God, we know that these discussions, they take time because they mean stuff to us. And so I pray that we'll just be able to rest in this beautiful space that you've created right now, that you are guarding this moment for us to connect with you. And so I just pray that each one of us, we would, we would just return to you, God, afresh. Thank you that you sent a mediator, Jesus. Thank you that you have bound us to him and he is bound to us. Lord, we know that we're not even safe by ourselves. Only you, in relationship, surrendered to you, is where safety is found. So we just remember your your blood and your body. And we give you our worship and our praise. Would you bring this back in our minds throughout the week as we walk out this world?